We're turning to Mark 11, even though we've been in a Matthew series for a very specific reason. And that is today marks what is remembered as and celebrated as the kickoff to Holy Week, the beginning of our very intentional walking with Jesus to the cross and to his resurrection. It's called Palm Sunday, which we're going to see in just a moment as we read through Mark chapter 11, from the picture of palm branches that those who are in Jerusalem welcome Jesus with as he comes. A couple of unique things about Palm Sunday. It is etched in the history and remembrance of God's people for good reason. All of the Gospels record this event. The Gospels themselves have varying degrees of the life of Jesus. Not all that he has done is recorded here, but in Matthew chapter 21, we see a record of Jesus entering Jerusalem and Palm Sunday in view. Mark chapter 11, as we're, as we're about to read, is Palm Sunday in view. John, or Luke has it as well, and so does John. John, in fact, comes through Palm Sunday and then spends nearly the rest of the book, almost half of his book, describing Holy Week. This week is significant. Around the world, beginning today, there are Christians in a myriad of languages, in all kinds of places and circumstances beginning to walk with Jesus in the last week of his life. So as we read, I want us to consider and to look at the picture that's being painted for us. How do we see Jesus in this moment? What is going to become clear, I hope for you, is that this picture that's painted for us, the portrait that we have, if I had to put a a title over our study today, it would be Palm Sunday Portrait. If we had to get a portrait of Jesus in this moment, we see him entering into Jerusalem to submit himself to the great battle of overcoming the wrath of God for our sins and then eventually overcoming death itself in the resurrection. This picture is precious. It's a portrait that is full of meaning. There's no way I'll be able to uncover all of the subtle and nuanced meaning of this portrait, but it is worth while to examine. Early in American history, art took on a very important role in setting up the symbols and the shared imagination of what it meant to be a country. I don't know if you know this, but we were once a part of Great Britain. I'm sorry if that was a spoiler for you. Some of you that are in like fourth grade American history are like, ah, you ruined it. So we were a part of Great Britain. And early on in the moments of our independence, when we began to recognize, well, what is it that secured this place in the world, artwork took on significance. One of the most famous early portraits in American history is a portrait of George Washington. He is pictured leading boats across the Delaware in the freezing cold in a surprise attack that ended up turning the tide of the Revolutionary War. And in the years and decades that followed, the people of America would look back and reflect on the meaning the symbolism of what was being represented in this portrait. And even now, if you take time to reflect on it, there might be things that pop out. In much the same way, I want to consider Palm Sunday, this portrait of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And after we've read it, I'm going to give you a few things that I think are worthwhile reflecting on. We certainly can't say it all, but we'll notice a few things. This is Mark chapter 11, starting in the first verse. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, 
And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went out before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, we're grateful. We're grateful that you've not remained hidden, but you've revealed yourself. Thank you for not staying silent, but speaking. We ask that you would help us with what we confess to be true this morning. These are not idle words, but living. So give us life. God, I ask especially for freedom and release from the distractions and doubts, the difficulties that we have in life that often make us unsteady, unfaithful. God, we pray for release from the temptations that we have toward rebellion and sin and pride. And I ask that as we consider the picture of Palm Sunday, as we share in this very day in reflecting on with billions around the globe, that we would consider King Jesus, the kingdom that he is ushering in, and that we would have a right understanding of the portrait that is given to us. So help us. God, I would love to be of benefit to your people. Please, may my words be helpful. Spirit of God, take our time and change us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not a massive art fan, nor am I an art critic. I do know that some of the crazy impressionist art is not my jam. I think that's the artistic way to say it. So I can see things that are good, and I, even in mentioning the portrait of Washington, I don't know much about the, the artist, and I probably couldn't sit and tell you all the nuance. And so rather than thinking only of high and lofty portraits, maybe I'll bring it down a little bit nearer. And as an example of the kind of things we might notice, I'll think just for a second about school portraits. My guess is that most of us have partaken in or been forced to partake in a school portrait at some point. For me, in the late 80s, that meant that I would be marched in to take a picture that I wasn't too concerned about, but looking back now, I have some consternation and embarrassment. One of the main reasons is because I grew up in a very cold place, and the thing about cold places that is often underrated is that cold places are often extremely dry in addition to being cold. So not only is it crazy, crazy cold, but it is painstakingly dry, skin itchy, scratchy, scale-like. In fact, 
When my wife, my wife first moved to live after we got married, to live in the great cold tundra of the north, the thing that struck her was is that nearly everything could become electrified through the dryness of the air. If you walked the wrong way across carpet and didn't prepare yourself before touching something metal, there would be sometimes even a visible shock that would shoot. I went to leave the house one time, went to give Sarah a kiss on the cheek, and I electrocuted her much like putting your finger in a socket. It came to the point where before I would go to leave, she would go like this and say, touch a few things first. We're kissing. And my thought was, what we would always prayed for is an electric marriage. I thought we were... I thought we were on the right path. The reality is is that dryness is a burden in a cold place. And as a young boy who had no time for being inside and wanted to play outside all the time and certainly had no time for things like, you know, chapstick or lip gloss, it often meant that I spent a couple months of every single year with a split lip, just a full open wound that would bleed at the moment's notice. And so when I went into school portrait time, I had to grin like this with an open, gaping, bloody wound on my lip, and it shows up in a number of my school portraits. I use school portrait because it's a little bit less exciting than a Washington King portrait, but also because I could say something like this, hey, what do you notice? Maybe you've seen a portrait of someone you love and it's so fun to see what they were once like. What would you notice if you saw a portrait of me at that time? Well, you might say, wow, I noticed floppy blonde hair and a lot of it, which would be shocking to you. A couple of days ago, my youngest interrogated me and wanted to know. He said, Dad, have I ever even been alive when you had hair? Has that even happened? So you might look at it and say, here's one thing I noted about your portrait. Bright, floppy, blonde hair. You might say you noted what is affectionately known on my mom's side of the family as the Hoverson hole, a consistent male pattern gap in our teeth. Many of the men down through the ages, if you see them smiling in portraits, have a little gap right here. So not only did I have floppy whatever hair, but I got a smiley gap. And then, of course, you would notice the dry air-inflicted wound on my mouth. These are the things that you do not have to be an art scholar or critic to notice. And what I want to do is suggest to you a few things that I don't believe you need to be a deep Bible scholar to notice about this portrait of Jesus. Now, I would encourage you, of all of the pictures and portraits or moments in Christ's life, this is one of the most chock-full of prophetic and nuanced meaning. You can pour through the pages of the Old Testament, and there will be moments when you'll say, whoa, it was this road, it was this time, it was that kind of animal, it was this saying, it is full of meaning. So the deepest of Bible scholars could study this and find point upon point upon point to hang understanding. But for us, let's just start with a few. Here will be a few things that I want to point out about the portrait of Jesus given to us on Palm Sunday. The first, we should note his sovereign provision. Jesus, though he is humble, 
though he has submitted himself to being a human and suffering human need and want just like us, is sovereign to the point where he shows a kind of foreknowledge and a command of the world around him that gives anyone who would follow him confidence that he could provide. This portrait of King Jesus shows sovereign provision. That's one thing we're going to point out when we say, well, what do you notice? Second, I think we should notice his humility. Mark doesn't make as clear a picture of this, but we're going to see that Matthew does, as well as the other Gospels. What we should note in Jesus as he comes into his kingdom, remember, this is King Jesus coming to his own. He has the rightful command of all the universe, and what we're going to notice in this is his humility. I also want to point out, if you're just going to take a picture at the portrait, portrait, I want to point out that this is, in fact, a posture of victory. We should note that Jesus is pictured, and as he comes in, he is pictured as, a, as being hailed as a victor, not only a king, but a king who gains victory. And then last, we're going to make sure and slow down and recognize that though Jesus is revealing himself as a king in all sovereignty and humility, that he's going to gain victory, that's the promise of this moment, that he does things in his own patient timing. We might say that he has prerogative over the way that victory comes. So those will be the things that we'll hang some thoughts on. If we're coming away from the portrait, what did we notice? Sovereign provision. We noticed humility. We're going to notice victory. And then we want to think about how he has prerogative and patience in the way that things go. So first, let's consider Jesus is about to come into Jerusalem. And in order to picture and to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy concerning this king, he needs an animal which is itself an interesting juxtaposition. We'll see how it fits with humility in a moment. But in order to accomplish this, Jesus, who has followers, and who I would say is making a claim on everyone's heart and mind here even down today, to say, follow me or come with me or submit to me as king, one of the first questions is, well, is this king trustworthy? Can he provide? The disciples were often sent on missions to answer that question, and they're sent here at the beginning of Mark 11 on an errand of faith. They tell the disciples, go out into a village in front of you. And then he begins to describe things that I'm sure to them felt like, how does he know this? There are numerous times in the New Testament where Jesus reveals a bit of his foreknowledge, a bit of the fact that he, is, he knows all things and can command all things. Here is one of them. He says, go into the village in front of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, it's possible that he knew the people at the gate, and he was playing a kind of prank on them, sort of like, I had it prepared ahead of time, but you don't know. But it doesn't give us that impression, and numerous other times, Jesus gives us bits of information that he couldn't have possibly known, apart from having sovereign foreknowledge. So he tells his disciples, go in and find a colt on which no one has ever sat. You're going to find it there as soon as you go in the gate. Now, my guess is the disciples may have loved these challenges. I would have loved them. You're sent out on this adventure. You're thinking to yourself, like, I don't know. This is crazy. Jesus always does this. He's going to tell us where stuff at. And then as he's telling them what to do, though, this has a kind of heightened bit of challenge because not only is it an errand of faith, and he says, here's what you're going to find, but it is an errand of thievery. He says, you know that colt you find that's going to be right behind the, the door? Just untie it and take it. Now imagine the feeling you might have had in your heart and soul thinking, Okay, I'm going to follow you. I guess I just go in and I just take things. And Jesus is kind. He anticipates their wondering about the thieving. 
And so he says, no, 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 no. Someone's going to ask you, just tell them I have need of it, and I'll bring it back immediately afterward. So they went away, and the disciples are encouraged in this moment to trust Jesus as a king and to realize that he is able to provide what is necessary. And he does so with a kind of rule of all things, people and time and place and knowledge that is absolutely supernatural. He reveals his deity in his ability to provide. This test of sovereignty is met with the real provision of exactly what Jesus described. It says that the disciples then went into the gate. They find the colt. There it is. It's outside in the street. They untie it. They bring it to Jesus after having to explain what's going on. And it says they put cloaks on it. A haphazard, last-minute show of honor. And Jesus sits on and begins to ride. Now, there are numerous bits of meaning behind this. Perhaps one thing that is a curiosity is what is Jesus picturing in his sovereignty over all things by intentionally jumping on an unbroken colt? I had a conversation with a gentleman after the first service, and we thought together about moments when we tried to hitch a ride on something that was unbroken. Have you ever tried to or pictured someone trying to ride an unbroken colt? Usually doesn't go well. I had some neighbors. They used to invite kids over to try to jump on the back of pigs and ride them around the pen. It often isn't pretty. It doesn't go well. You see, animals, until they're trained or broken, aren't normally meant to peacefully accept a rider. But Jesus says, I'm in command of all things. I can sovereignly provide even from an, a rebellious, unbroken colt. I will have what I need. We are, I believe, taught through this moment of testing in the disciples. We are invited to and taught to trust in King Jesus as one who can provide even from unlikely circumstances or places that you might say to yourself, I don't know, I just don't see it. If I was to say to you, follow someone, submit to them, they are to be your king, you might rightfully say, are they trustworthy? Am I going to be okay? Will I have what I need? And the picture and portrait we have here is that Jesus can provide all that is needed. He is, in that way, worthy of being trusted. Now, because we are being called to submit to this king, and this is the picture that's being given to us, not only would you want to know if you could be provided for, but it's extremely important to know what kind of ruler a person's going to be. Because authority can be handled in very, very different ways. And so we are taught to see not only his provision, but his humility in here. What are we taking away from the portrait? His humility. Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5 highlight this. Matthew writes it this way, the same portrait. He said, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
Jesus comes to them, comes to us, humbly. This ought to calm us and strike us as an invitation to submit ourselves to Jesus. My personal experience has been that wherever submission is required of me, whenever there is a hierarchy or whenever there is a moment when I need to say, yes, I submit, you're the leader, I'm not. You're the king, I'm the subject. That nothing is more important in those circumstances than humility. If you've ever been led by a pompous, self-important, proud leader, you can know how difficult it is to remain committed to submitting. Pride that says, I am up here and you are down there and I'm going to remind you of that over and over again is difficult to follow. Pride that says, your problems way over there don't affect me over here so I'm going to remain separate. That kind of pride is difficult to follow. Pride that says, service is for you, being served is for me. That kind of leadership is extremely hard to follow. And some of us are rebellious enough of heart, let alone being asked to follow someone like that. Have you ever been in a circumstance like this? Pompous ruling is a mix that often leads to rebellion. But Scripture paints a picture. What's the portrait of Jesus? Jesus, we are told, is opposite of this. Though he has rightful claim to all rule in all of the universe, he is humble. The circumstances of his birth were humble. He lived in relative obscurity, did not lord it over those around him that he had unbelievable knowledge and power. He did not show off his power to let others feel beneath him. Jesus did not leave the problems of someone else way over there and remain removed, but drew near. Jesus did not say, you are beneath and I am above, but instead became human, taking on human flesh and living the life of a servant on our behalf. Jesus lived a less comfy life than he deserved. And he certainly had a less royal coronation than he could have demanded. And all of this is a picture and a portrait of our king who invites us not through command and showing us how low we are and how great he is, but instead by ruling through getting low and drawing us near. Jesus rightfully could have said, all right, I've lived in obscurity. It's been 33 years, but I'm going to the cross. It's about time everybody saw how great I was. He could have commanded every palace to shut its doors and give all of its gold out into the street. He could have said, bring all of your finest linens, the purples, the reds, and lay out a red carpet. He could have said, where is the finest steed in all the land? Every time I say that word, I think, he called me a steed. I don't know if you know that reference or not, but he could have demanded the best of animals. He could have said, I don't care where the armies are in all the land, bring them back. They need to stand here and bring out their swords, and as I walk by, they should bow. He could have made a grand display of all these things, and yet 
Here is our suffering servant of a king coming into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And I believe what this portrait ought to evoke in us is a sense that this king can be trusted. This king is the kind of king, a king who says to us, Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. A king who says, my burden, my yoke is easy, it's light. The humility of Jesus beckons us to come. That's the picture of Palm Sunday. And I believe that this humility leads us to another thing that we ought to note. Why is it humble? Because it's a humble coronation. But it is nonetheless still a coronation. So as you see Jesus sovereignly providing through a kind of foreknowledge that is quite literally otherworldly, and as you see him humbly coming into his kingdom, we also gain confidence and hope knowing that he is in fact coming into a kingdom. This is a scene of victory. You might say to yourself, well, that doesn't make sense. Humility to me means not victory. And I think that we should rid ourselves of that assumption if that's the case. Humility is receiving all that God has given you to steward. Not insisting that you're anything more. That's what most people think about as pride. Someone who says, God has given me a certain stewardship, but I'm way more. I did this. I earned this. A constant lying. But there is also a kind of rejection of what God has given you to steward that insists on you being less than what he has given. And so Jesus would have not been humble to reject the praises of people. He would have not been humble to not come in and fulfill his purpose in ministry to become the name above all names. But he is humble by taking on the rightful role that he's been given, the task of his obedience to the Father in bringing about reconciliation of the lost. And so we see this picture. It's a portrait of a hope of victory. Jesus is fulfilling, with his choice of a donkey in humility, the victor's entrance. In Genesis 49, there's a description for the hope of Israel. And of different tribes, there's given different prophecies or things that will come to pass. And we read, starting in the 10th verse, there's a couple verses of Genesis 49, that the tribe of Judah, which is Jesus' own tribe, this is what is said of them, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. These few short verses. Remember how I said earlier that when you're a, if maybe you're an art critic to the point where you understand brush strokes and colors, you might even know the personal story of the artist, you could look at a piece of art and find something that someone next to you might be saying, I just don't see it. This is one of those passages in Genesis 49 that invites us to greater understanding. The throne of David through the line of Judah, and the people cry out, Blessed is them who come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father, David. There's nuance here. Seeing the foal that is 
tied up, the donkey's colt to the choice vine. Jesus uses vine imagery all throughout. The idea of his garments being washed in wine, vestures in blood of grapes. I mean, do you see all the potential nuance and, and uh, imagery here? For now, though, I want to point out verse 10, and that is, is that Jesus comes to fulfill the promise that the scepter and a ruling staff will never leave him. That this is, in fact, the beginning of a tribute that comes where all the peoples come in obedience before our king. I used to think that a victory parade for a king into a, a city would have had to have been on some kind of war horse. And that perhaps Jesus was eschewing all imagery of kingship and rule here. But the reality is that apparently riding on a young colt or a foal was not anathema to rulers of the day. That if you were a king, you would take transportation with a less impressive war horse. But it would have signaled something to those who were following. So if you had gone out to the streets and the king of the land had come through, you might see him on a young colt or a foal, but it would tell you something different than if you came into the street and you saw the king coming down on a massive horse. Apparently, horses, war horses, were used to describe the idea of battle, ongoing call to arms. This is wartime. Whereas if you saw a king slowly and with intention making his way through the streets on a young colt, it was a description that peace had come, that peace was coming, that a great reconciliation had happened. And Scripture, again, tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That what he's about to accomplish, what he's declaring to all who are coming to him, is that he will be King Reconciler. He will be a king that brings about a meeting of heaven and earth that has been not brought together since the sin in the garden. So this victory, this thing that Jesus, our king, calls us to is not to send us to war, but to fight a war on our behalf so that peace could be experienced and we could have rest. This is the imagery of victory, of hope that pride won't win out, that warring won't be the word of the day. Jesus brings victory, and people would have hoped in this. Now, in this portrait, it may be that right now, you could put yourself with those who are crying out, Hosanna. This is a phrase that means, save us. What's interesting about this particular phrase, save us, is that it means it's an urgent save us. It means something like this, save us now. And maybe you're watching the portrait and you say to yourself, well, this is great. He's humble, but he's gathering all that he needs and everybody's coming in obedience and he is bringing victory. And now I want to see stuff happen. But what's interesting is that the passage goes on and not everything happens all at once. In fact, there's a period of waiting here. Note verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. So he comes into Jerusalem in this way. Everyone's crying out, 
wait a minute, this is the kingdom of our father David, who is a great king. We're crying out, save us now. And it says that he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, he looked around at everything, and as it was already late, he left. Do you see the picture here? There's an urgent save us. Jesus, you can command cults and people give it to you if you have need of it. And you are so humble in inheriting this kingdom and you're bringing victory and you can bring peace. Now go do something. This city's full of oppressors. They're exchanging money outside the temple in a place that was supposed to be a house of prayer. There are religious leaders who are enriching themselves on the widow's might. The sacrifice has been unholy and blasphemed. And you can imagine a case where the subjects, the followers say to the king, all right, we're following, but you just got to start doing stuff, especially on our command and in our timing. And instead, Jesus walks in and he looks and he takes stock and then he walks out. Because part of the portrait of this king is that he has patient prerogative. He has control over the timing and the manner in which he brings about his kingdom. And this is very, very difficult for those of us who simply want him to act. Now, of course, he will act. The next day, he comes and he exchanges in the temple. He overturns the money changers and cleanses the temple. He gives a lesson of the fig tree and says, you know, this is the whole system. These religious leaders in this temple, they're going to die and be done away with. But then again, for many days, he's more or less silent. He doesn't march in and overtake an army. He doesn't down the palace. He doesn't oust the high priest in a show of power. He's just sort of quiet. And then worse than that, he submits himself in a mock, terrible trial, and gives up his life to death. And here's my guess. All of those who are suffering, all of those who are politically insignificant, all of those who wished they could just be saved now, were probably looking at their watches saying, is it going to happen? Why not now? And I wonder if we can't relate. Victory has been assured to us, but we still don't see all things. Hebrews 1 says, we don't yet see all things in subjection under his feet. I think Brian was the first that I heard this illustration from, and I'm sure he stole it from someone else, but I'll give him credit at least for stealing it. What's being pictured here is the reality that D-Day has occurred. You know, D-Day in World War II is the day that there is a decisive, there's a decisive landing of forces on the continent of Europe. If you look back in the history of the war, you'd say this is a decisive victory, a battle that is one that's going to be turning momentum, but it doesn't mean that victory immediately and totally and in full comes right then. There will be skirmishes and loss and battles and V-Day signing of a peace treaty is yet far off. We live in a time like that. Jesus' portrait, his picture here as he comes into Jerusalem, is that he's the king. He's invaded, he's become incarnate, he's taken on human flesh, he's the rightful heir of this throne of David. He's overcome death itself. 
by resurrecting from the grave. He's absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. And yet, there is a day of victory that is not yet here. And so you might be saying something like this. You know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm coming up to another Holy Week. I could have taught this, Lance. I don't know about you, but I've heard the Palm Sunday thing a few times. In fact, back in my day when I was a little kid, I waved a palm branch or two. And yet you might say to yourself, I've committed myself to King Jesus, but here's the thing. I still suffer lack. Why isn't he doing anything to provide? You might say something like this. I'm following King Jesus, but you know what? I still see the proud and the pompous having great influence in the world. I still see warring. I don't see peace. I hurt others and I'm hurt by them. There is not justice everywhere, certainly. Why isn't he doing anything? I don't know what particular list of things come to mind, personal, or family, or cultural, or political, or economic. But perhaps the challenge this week is to see a portrait of King Jesus and to say, yes, he's trustworthy. I'm going to give over not only my life to his provision and his humility and his victory, but also to his prerogative and patient control. Because a day is coming in the future where the promise of Jesus that he is working to bring all things to a glorious close will be the inheritance of all who follow him. We may not see all of the shining glory of this inheritance here in this life. In fact, we're promised that we won't. But our lack will be turned to utter unspeakable fullness. In one day, all that is proud, including our own hearts that continually push back against our rightful king, all that is proud will be humbled. And there is coming a day when there will not even be whisper of war, but peace will be perfected. Every eye will be wiped of its tears. Jesus will bring all things to himself in peace. We are not there yet. We're invited to look forward to that day. A day is coming when the humble colt and foal will be replaced by Jesus coming on a great white horse. And he will bring judgment with him. And he will say to all nations in all places at all times, come into my kingdom. This is the portrait that we are taught to see concerning Jesus. And over the next number of days, we'll be invited to consider what it means to commit ourselves to Him. Do you trust Jesus who came in the flesh and emptied Himself? Do you trust Him to provide what you need? Do you see in Jesus a humble servant who came Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you desire peace? 
then King Jesus, who comes as the Prince of Peace, is worthy to be trusted. This is the portrait of Palm Sunday. And I would invite you to trust not only in this King, but in His timing. Let's pray.